Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hello, how's it going? Hey, Katie, how are you? How's your week treating you? I'm doing good. Luke is uh, <laughs> off away visiting the mystical sites of the Midwest at present. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, I am on assignment in the Midwest, reporting to you live from Springfield, Illinois, just a from few a weeks hotel. after. Just a few weeks after Lincoln's body, I finally found Lincoln's body. He did it. I didn't. I didn't time that right, but congratulations, you did it. You found it. Um, yes, I, sp I spent the day at the presidential library. It was a lot of fun, and saw some Lincoln sites around Springfield, and was thinking about the podcast all day. So, of course, very excited. yeah. So hopefully, we get to see some, of maybe the images from your travels, um, and mm -hmm. send Luke special big thanks for taking time out of his vacation to uh, chat with me today. Um, but I know he happens to be very excited for today's episode. Duh, duh, yes. Duh, darling, yeah. Uh, we are certainly covering something that is not foreign to you, and <laughs> most people know this story to some extent, so I'll be giving somewhat of a more in-depth uh, telling. But again, as is the case with some of our episodes, in particular, everything that I've done involving the Russians, I can only go in so deep. <laughs> oh, it's, those Russians. Oh, those Russians. <laughs> There's just so much goddamn information. There's so many names. Things are changing every other day during yes. this time period. Everybody's a people bitch. Alayevich, Adayevich, Orovich. I can't. So... <laughs> I'm going to give you as entertaining a story as I possibly can, or as interesting a story as I possibly can. And without us getting too bogged down in dates and people and political parties and everything else. So we are picking up where we left the Romanovs crying over Rasputin. <laughs> I know it was, uh, it was very hard on them and, and they really, probably could have used his spiritual yeah. guidance through yeah. what would, they would go through next. Um, I also just want to note before I really dive in, and Luke, you you probably will agree with me on this. I am not team Nicholas II. <laughs> I, no. no, I, he was a horrible ruler and the Russian people suffered tremendously under him from ruling as an autocrat to murdering peaceful protesters to the disgust disgusting pogroms against the Jewish people fueled by his, by the way, rampant anti-Semitism. Totally. His totally irresponsible decisions he made with World War One. I. I mean, he's just, he's not most people's hero. He's certainly not mine. No. That Wonders means, left and right. Absolutely. Yeah. That being said, do I believe he deserved to die the way he did? I do not. Right. We may not be pro-monarchy, but we're not pro, you know, murder either. So. I'm not pro-murdery, <laughs> not pro-regicide, <laughs> and certainly not pro the killing of innocent people, mm -hmm. people who had nothing to do with this. So just wanted to get that disclaimer out front. <laughs> but I have watched, I don't know, endless documentaries and read books, and no one can really give me a particularly great reason why it, the entire family was captured and killed, why that decision mm. was made. I mean, I think we could probably assume that part of that was, you know, once the revolution had occurred, there was a lot of fear that 
perhaps the idea of people who were true monarchists, they would want to hold on to the air. Yeah, let's snuff out the future of this dynasty completely, you know. Right. An insurance policy against that revolution. But you know, then sense. you could say the question of like, yeah, but this is this is primogeniture. They don't they don't bring girls up to be true. <laughs> to true. be at Tsarina. So what was mm-hmm. the point mm. of this? And to me, and my general thesis for this is I think this was mostly vengeance and anger. Yeah, very symbolic. Yeah, very symbolic. So let's get into it. Uh, here's a little refresher on where we last left off. We finished by discussing the quote-unquote big if true, but likely probably not true story of Rasputin's death in December of 1916. <laughs> We're going to fast forward to 1917, where we find the Romanov dynasty in a very fragile state. Mm. As we know, everything up until now, it's just been bad decision on top of bad decision. Rasputin is dead, but that certainly doesn't make the Russian people feel much better about the family. And currently, they are still in World War One, and it is not going good. Uh, the peasantry is being annihilated, murdered en masse in the war, and morale is at an all-time low in the country because people are literally starving to death. It's horrendous. and and No resources. There's no resources because there's no men All of the men who would have been running these farms are currently fighting in the war. So the food system collapses. The transportation system collapses. Mm -hmm. People start to riot because it's a desperate time. And there's just nothing for them at this point but to riot. Right. Right. By the way, (laughs) one of the rudest things that I learned about that Nikki put in place was he felt like one thing that maybe would help morale would be to enact prohibition <laughs> that if come if on are, dude that's what i'm saying if people are drunk that's good that makes you kind of sad so no let's let's just get rid of alcohol and it's like let's take away me? the one thing that inspires joy in russia the almighty vodka are you, are you kidding me are you kidding me? Excuse me. My country is literally starving and dying and on the brink of collapse and I can't have a fucking cocktail. <laughs> right. And now I'm coming for all the functioning alcoholics and not so functional alcoholics. Yeah. How dare you? That's gross. How, how fucking how dare, dare you? you? You wouldn't have done this if Rasputin was still alive. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was pro, pro, pro vodka, pro spirits. Pro drinky drinks. Yes. I know. Um, mm-hmm. And also you collect tax revenue from alcohol sales. Dude, just sure. He's just the worst. He just sucked at his job in a way that few people have ever sucked at any job ever. <laughs> well, here's a question. I know you're just getting into. You have a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. But there's a long-held hypothesis that the Russian culture prefers or is best suited by a aggressive central power, whether it's a czarist power or a red czar in terms of the communists. Have it's, you come across a, this at all? And you know, Absolutely, in like everything I've read. And I mean, look at what happens after the revolution. Immediately, there's a clear leader. It's like, that's the thing mm-hmm. where communism falls apart is there is always one strong man who seems to step up and take control. So they tried to yes. do like the most equal form of government and they couldn't do it because it's just not how they roll. It's not how they function. Right. And they so, yeah. Like secularize the czar. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there will always be a quote unquote czar. I, I think even I, mm-hmm. in one 
of the things I read that even the people around Putin refer to him as a czar because that's the amount of power he wields. This is fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, how do you overcome this shadow of the monarchy when it has mm -hmm. been a part of your country longer than not? Much longer than not. Yes. So I don't know. That's an, that's something we probably won't see in our lifetimes where there isn't some strong, bordering on terrifying leader of yes. Russia. We're going to probably have to edit a lot of that. <laughs> but I know I'm, I'm my brain is everywhere with this, too, because mm -hmm. I love learning this subject. It's just so fucking much. So anyway, where the fuck even was I? Uh <laughs> you had not even begun. <laughs> nope. We're already off. <laughs> so people are angry, needless to say. And this obviously encourages a call for revolution. And by the way, I should remind everyone at this time, Nikki isn't even there. He's not he's on the, he's in on the front. Seat. Yeah, he's on the front. He's 500 miles away from St. Petersburg, quote unquote, leading the Russian army. And by leading the Russian army, it's like standing around and stuff. Leading from behind, doing nothing. Yeah, exactly. Because he's not a military leader. That's not he never had training in that has no idea what he's doing. Mm. Um, also important to note is with him are the best and most loyal and well-trained soldiers and guards. And so the question then becomes, so who's watching the Capitol in his absence? And here's where we get into a bad spot for the Romanovs. You're basically back at home with basically like, I don't know, the third string young untrained soldiers who frankly weren't even that invested in protecting the monarchy and mm. in the midst of all of the rioting and essentially revolution, they decide to mutiny and they join the revolutionaries. They're like, we're not going to fire mm. on you guys. All right. We're just going to go along with this. And so, you know, this is really how you overthrow a government. You have to get soldiers on board or you have to get yes. the police on board. You have to get people who have Coercing. power. Yeah, of state. yeah, people with mm -hmm. weapons is your best way to win a revolution. <laughs> right. So these young these young bucks are just transformed into radicals. Yeah. Be because they're young and impressionable and there's no yep. other old old guards there to, you know, hold the line. Yeah. And listen, it's not like life has been fucking roses up until that moment. It's a, it's a very hard time. I think I was reading stuff about like the cost of an egg was like four to five times what it was at the turn of the century or something wild like that. Like just crazy stuff about the crazy cost inflation. of bread. There, there being no bread for periods of time. Basic mm. human needs, you know? Scarcity of resources. Yeah, as we know, that leads to desperation and desperation yep. leads to violence. <laughs> and that's I what... stole a loaf of bread. Oh, oh don't. On. You're not... Mm, that's not even the right revolution. <laughs> 19 years. Right. I, I'm not doing this with you. Stop. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> anyway. So they're starving. Right. After days of riots and death, the Duma military leadership and pretty much anyone and everyone is telling Nicholas, dude, it's over. You, you have to abdicate. You have to give up the throne. And frankly, he... He resisted initially, but he really didn't have a choice. I mean, 
he knew above all else, his family was not safe in mm. St. Petersburg without him. And God knows what would have happened if he'd have really tried to hold on to the throne much longer. I imagine it would have gotten really ugly really fast. So on March 15th, 1917, he gives up his crown. Just and like this is just like that. 300 years of your family's reign is just over. It's hard to fathom what that must have felt like to feel like, wow, this was me. I'm the one yeah. who ruined this. I'm the last one. No one wants to be the last one. The The Lucy Worsley documentary, The Last Czars, she yeah. mentions that he signed, he, signed, he signed away his rights in pencil, which tells you that maybe he thought it was going to be reversed. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. that's he, Maybe he's holding out hope for that, you know. Well, he actually initially wants to abdicate to his son, Alexei, oh. which, as you know, mm. is not the most Problematic. robust gentleman. And uh, no. upon further reflection and advice, you know, withdraws that. But it actually is abdicated to his brother, Michael. Right, right. And his brother, Michael, is like, absolutely fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the dynasty officially ends. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He even said, like, you know, if there's a vote and everyone's okay with us still having a monarchy, then maybe I'll do it. But clearly yeah. that wasn't Mikey Romanoff, no thank you. Yeah. No, so that's that's it. Dynasty over. Uh, incredible. It's unbelievable. And everything just goes wild from this point on. So while many are rejoicing in this moment, it does bring a crazy amount of chaos into Russia. There is a fight to see what kind of government will come next and who's going to run it. A provisional government is put in place, uh, consisting of members of the Duma and Soviets. But obviously, in the midst of this, the Romanovs are not rejoicing. In fact, they are understandably terrified. Panicked. So, Where are they yeah. going to go? Exactly. They are technically not the royal family anymore. So what's supposed to become of them? Almost immediately and most obviously, there's talks of asylum. Who will take them in? And yes. top of the list, without question, is England. And they actually do make an offer of asylum to His them. After there. all, a lot of their relations are from there. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. their family. I mean, there's there's beautiful pictures of mm-hmm. uh, Alex as a little girl next to her grandmother, Queen Victoria. This is their family. Mm-hmm. If my family was <laughs> being overthrown, I would take them into my house. Of Sadly, course, however, without question. Yeah, without question. <laughs> Sadly, however, uh, King George rescinds this offer of asylum. and Because there's some kind of geopolitical consequence for him, isn't there? So this is where what do you think? What's your hot gets, take on this? This is, okay, I mean, my personal hot take is yeah. he, like every other monarch in Europe, was shitting the bed that this happened. And everyone is so unhappy with this war. It's yeah. awful. It's dragging. The death counts are unreal and who's to say sure russia's been a mess for a long time and let's be honest this was probably a long time coming but it's not like there aren't socialists in this country in england sure it's not like they're totally having a great time so who's to say we wouldn't piss our people off too right and they're in the process of rebranding themselves from being a german family Right. Right. And like, it's so, it's so interesting because like all these countries are fighting each other, yet all the royal families are related, 
yet that doesn't really seem to affect the general public at all and their will or lack thereof. The Kaiser, for that matter, he wanted to go into war. You know, so it's like, let me just, I don't want the stain of this failed monarchy in my home, maybe. You know, it's, it's, it's looking out for number one. Yeah, and I mean, other countries like France straight up said, no, we don't want you here because of that German bitch. <laughs> like <laughs> The dreaded German Tsarina. Because, and this is going back to the Rasputin stuff, those spy rumors were so pervasive. They spread mm. all throughout Europe to the point where they thought like, oh yeah, Tsarina is totally helping the Kaiser. So Alex may have had an outsized role in this and them being anathema to like everybody because she had that the, is absolutely the what, German stain. Yeah. Her German background, mm -hmm. the fact that monarchs don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole in general. Yeah. But what's funny is uh, people are really one of two ways with the George, the King George thing is some of them are like, listen, what choice did he really have? You can kind of see where he's coming from and his ministers really were not on board with this. Yeah. But then also like, there was never really even an inkling of a possibility that the English would do anything like what the Russians did. So were they just being dramatic or were they just looking for an excuse not to do it and blamed it on fear of reper repercussion? We'll it's, never know. It's it's tough. It's hard to know. Yeah, we'll never know. But King George is absolutely vilified by many for this yeah. decision. Here's the thing, though. Even if they had found asylum it would have been extremely hard for them to leave the country because by now the railway workers and soldiers guarding the railways were not exactly sympathetic to the family. Right. Right, right away, people want Nicholas dead. So right. you need to airlift them out, but they don't absolutely. have Absolutely. <laughs> and so where are the resources for any of this? Who cares about them enough to like keep them protected? and spend that much money on them. Right. The number of people who are willing to do that are dwindling and losing power also, might I add. And there were other plans of them being able to escape to other places. The situation with the railways made it impossible. So, mm -hmm. and then there are other people who say, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't know that they even really would have wanted to leave Russia because they're such Russians through and through. There's stuff in there like diaries and letters and stuff i think the they would have considered england but beyond that i'm not sure right because from what we know from watching the crown when you abdicate <laughs> you you have to leave the country that's the rule you can't stay you around you're, you're really sure you're competing you're you're competing against whatever the new power source is you know you're always a rival <laughs> if you learn nothing from this story it's when you abdicate you really need to leave <laughs> You need to leave immediately. You're gonna have an exit strategy with that with that signature. You gotta, you gotta be ready go. to go. So booked. Since exile seems highly unlikely, the provisional government orders that the family will then be under house arrest in Alexander Palace in Sarsko Selo, which was essentially their summer residence, which is about 30 miles south of St. Petersburg. So listen, they're not exactly in prison. They're in their summer house. So at this point, <laughs> they're doing fine. The summer palace. Yeah, they could even like go outside and do stuff. I mean, they're not allowed to be unsupervised, but they can still like hang out in a place that they know and are comfortable. But this does not last very long. The palace becomes an unsafe place pretty quickly. And by July 1917, the provisional government determines that the safest place to send them would actually be Tobolsk, Siberia, which if you recall, mm. our boy Rasputin was from. 
Pootie, Pootie Cloots. <laughs> I'm sure that was not on their mind when they were looking at that hotel <laughs> option, that Airbnb option. The train literally passed by his home while they were traveling there. <laughs> Yeah. And listen, it was actually picked because it's 150 miles from the closest railway station. (laughs) So it's it's, so scary. It's super, super safe in that regard. But yeah, and and apparently Alex wrote to a friend that it brought her tremendous comfort and said that the road was eased by our friend who calls us there. And she was so glad to be going back to the quote unquote reaches of their friend. I I think it just, yeah, I mean, listen, regardless of what the total nature of her relationship with Rasputin was, she loved this man. And that in such a terrifying time to feel some kind of closeness to this person again their homeland i could see that you know whether or not they slept together she was still digmatized by him oh completely i mean (laughs) listen we've all seen the penis now if you've looked it up who wouldn't be (laughs) (laughs) another little interesting tidbit that i didn't mention in the last episode is that all of the daughters had been given a little amulet with a picture but they were given the amulet from rasputin they wore them around their necks, and it was a picture of him and one of his prayers in it. Which, P.S., I'm going to give you a picture of my fucking self. <laughs> this guy, I can't. But a they wore them on cam- their necks. A little cameo of you, of, of me. Yeah. yeah. But what next? Yeah. Lock of hair? Well, else he's we an, here? He's he's an egomaniac, as you know. But yeah. mm-hmm. apparently the girls wore them till their literal dying day. They, they had them on wherever <sighs> they went. The family arrives there via train and then ferries. That's how you get the rest of the way there by August 19th. And this is, uh, we're still in 1917 at this point. Things are going okay there. They're actually there for a while until spring of 1918. Because at this point, Russia is on fire. They are fully in a civil war after the provisional government is overthrown during what is now known as the October Revolution in 1917. And it is now headed by the Councils of People's Commissars, led by everyone's favorite commie, Vladimir Lenin. 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 Yay. Yay. (laughs) Sort of. Yay. Beginning of the end. Yeah. The beginning Mm -hmm. of the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with the Bolsheviks in power, you could argue Mm -hmm. at this point that the Romanovs had to have known the odds of them coming out of this alive were not very good. They taught. Are they they betraying that and what they're saying to people at all? Yeah. They're writing letters and they often talk about feeling sentiments of like, it feels like, you know, death is chasing us everywhere we go. There's, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it was a d- different experience for the children than the adults. And Alex was always a, sort of a, a darker person. So I think she definitely felt like she knew so the, in her heart. So there's, a health, there's a healthy amount of fatalism here. I think so. Um, mm-hmm. But still at the core of them, that primal thing to survive, you know, they're still trying and they're still trying to have good times together they play games they go for walks like they celebrate birthdays they're still trying to live their lives as much as they can under guard remotely far away no status yeah and on their shoulders they're they're focusing on the micro they're trying but it's um it's nothing compared to what they were used to um and here's the funny thing about them being living all the way out in siberia they weren't having the starvation issues because they were that (laughs) far away (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they ate pretty well. 
I just imagine you have like a vodka chilling in the snow for like six months and it's just totally fine because it's so cold. Like, you know, refrigeration is just different. How delicious do you think Siberian snow vodka tastes? I mean, I want that ice luge right now. Divine. Divine. So, so good. Anyway, back in Moscow, Lenin and Trotsky and other members of the party felt strongly that Nicholas apparently should be brought to Moscow for like a show trial. That was an idea they kicked around for a while to, so that he would be held accountable for all the wrong he's done to the Russian people, kind of go through this, I guess, just to stand there and yell at him <laughs> and yeah. call him out for everything he ever did wrong. Yeah, ultimately, it probably would have ended in his execution, I would assume, right? Exactly. All roads lead to that same place, right? Right. That's what I would think. And I think it was just for the dramatics, which, as we know... <laughs> the communists in Russia love to make a statement. So they love, this is kind they love of good optic. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they love propaganda. So this is an early example of that kind of thing, I think. And so mm -hmm. makes sense. But making that happen was going to be incredibly hard because honestly, most people involved in the revolution just just wanted Nikki dead. They didn't they didn't give a shit about they everybody knows what he did wrong. Just kill him. We're done. We're done with him. And again. I really can't go into all of this because it's absurdly complicated, but there's so many sure. different factions within this revolution. The Bolsheviks oh, are mean, in power, but yeah. my God, there's like 40 different people operating who want things their way. And it's, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, Luke, I, I know you've read books on this. I've read books on this. I still could not tell you this story word for Succinctly. word with all no. the players. No, it's not no. possible. And not to reduce everything to a comparison to American history, but we know how 13 micro republics, republics, the colonies, tried to break away from one monarch and how difficult that was. Yeah. Some some being very respectful towards the monarch, some being in the middle, some being very anti. One can only imagine the diversity and plurality of opinion within yes. the Russian people in this time period. Even when they're saying down with the monarchy, they're no, saying, Luke, well, though, well, he, he should be fine. He should live in Iceland. Let's not touch him. And then, no, you know, let's persecute him. That's a really good him. example, though, for our mostly American audiences. Sure. You know, I think we look at the Russian Revolution with very broad strokes. But you have to remember, not everyone wanted this extremism. Right. Not a you know, like, there's levels. You have people who are still monarchists and people who are like, well, no, we don't need the monarchy anymore. But I certainly don't want to be a fucking communist. <laughs> like we could do capitalism. We could do this. We could do that. They're like, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's why Russia remains in total chaos and why the status of Nicholas and his family continues to be, frankly, a liability. Because they right. don't really the, know what to do with them. The longer they exist, the more this this can exists to kick down the road or to exactly, deal with. Yeah. exactly. So there are also rumors that are going around that there are family and friends that are trying to create escape plans for them. Although now it's from everything I've read, it sounds like those were mostly Bolshevik rumors to Ooh. help, uh, yeah, to help expedite the idea of like there's an urgency to get rid of them. Which is uh, disgusting. It's so despicable. Oh God, right. So they're saying yeah. they're trying to leave. Let's yeah. kill them now. It's a couple things. It's either if we don't do it, then someone is going to come in and rescue them. Or if we don't do it, someone else will. And we yes. want to be the ones who do it. <laughs> Correct. So, it has to be us. So yeah, as I was just alluding to, you have you, you know this idea that maybe friends and family might save them. But then you have the white army, who is in direct mm -hmm. opposition to the red army. And the white mm -hmm. army consists of Russians who were anti-communist and definitely anti-Bolshevists. Yeah. So 
they would be the ones potentially to try to save and protect the Romanovs. I don't think they would necessarily agree to put them back in power, but I don't think they necessarily felt the need for them to die. Definitely not. Yeah. So the pressure was mounting and it seemed to Lenin and all the others that they were pretty much out of out of options. Whoever's um, going to win this civil war essentially is going to have the solution to the Romanov problem. Yeah, so it the time has come to leave Tobolsk ultimately because things are getting way too crazy. Too hot and in Tobolsk. So yeah, upon the order of those in Moscow again that means probably Lenin himself. In April of 1918, the imperial family is moved to a town called mm. Yekaterinburg. They are led there by Yakov Yurovsky, one of history's greatest sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> His level of, uh, I don't know, some of these guys during the revolution, their dedication to the cause is so much fueled by the fact that these are very sick people. Mm-hmm. Like, these are people who, like, this was their fucking moment to shine. Like, for them, it's like, thank God the revolution came along so I can just kill people. <laughs> oh, God. Sociopath he's, in waiting. Yeah. Yeah, he's a terrifying character. So he brings them to the Ipatiev house. Yes. Which had been commandeered from its owner, who was apparently this lovely engineer, whose last name was Ipatiev. With only two days' notice, he's told, you got to get the fuck out of here. We need this house. You'll get it back. The people staying here aren't going to break anything. Don't worry about it. It's We're gonna not going to shoot anything. Yeah. No, it's going to be totally fine. You're going to love it. You're going to love how it looks when you get back. Uh, so the Bolsheviks renamed the home the House of Special Purpose, which is just... Sounds very Nazi-esque. It's just one of the most foreboding and disturbing names. And the ever. house looks the house looks scary to me. It looks like it looks like a it doesn't look inviting. Like a big, it actually like a, was very beautiful. You know, maybe it's just guy, my bias of just knowing. I know that, just because you know what happened in there. Yes, that's why that's why right. you feel that way. But it actually it was a lovely home these two people created together. And it's just it's tragic. That's as like a side tragedy what happened to him that he sure. his home was destroyed. So the reason why the house is chosen is because of its central location where they felt they could easily defend it from anyone who was perhaps trying to liberate the family or even any of the other <laughs> Red Army factions who were mm -hmm. coming along to try to take the family potentially and kill them themselves. So, and, and again, I still can't get over the fact that how excited people were to kill them. Like, yeah. it's, it's really... I can't understand it at all. It's like, it's like mob mentality, you know? It is. Like, as if somehow killing these people is going to put bread back on your table, is going to take back mm -hmm. all of the hurt you've ever had in your life. It's just not. Right. Right. When that life is so abhorrent that this thing is seen as possibly a way to deliver oneself from that. That's yeah. how that's how sad of a situation that is. It really, I can't. Uh, by the way, I just want to take a moment to give a little lighthearted piece of yes, information that I learned. <laughs> I mean, lighthearted to us. It definitely wasn't lighthearted to Nikki, but apparently throughout this whole situation of moving from house to house to house, Nikki had hemorrhoids. Oh, poor baby. Right? Like, come I mean, on. Stress is killing him. It's stress on stress. He's doing a poor lot of long journeys, sitting down. God knows yeah. what he's eating. I mean, come no. on. A lot of walking, a lot of smoking, a lot of stress. Poor comrade. Yeah, like, Romanoff. could this get any worse? Well, I mean, obviously it can. 
and it's going to. Oh, okay. Anyway. <laughs> so what's weird is there's all this hurry up and wait from this point on. The family sits there for months. They get there in Ugh. April, and it isn't until July that word comes from Moscow again, again, likely Lenin, uh, that the quote-unquote baggage, which is how they were often referred to in telegrams, needed to be eliminated. I'd also like to point out the fact, by the way, that <laughs> Yakolov seemed to have zero issue with this pivot, even though he had initially been dispatched to simply get the family to this new location and then find a way to bring Nicholas to Moscow for this show trial. He right. seemingly was perfectly fine with this change of course of like, oh, no, we're going to kill them now? Okay, cool. Great, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. That's great, actually. I'm <laughs> I'm super excited for that. <laughs> yeah, and when you read his account that he wrote about the murders, I don't know if you've ever read his actual... No, I don't think so. It's chilling simply because of how unaffected he seems. He it's writes like without emotion. Yeah. It's all mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. And he also talks about being kind to them which to me is even more really disgusting and disturbing. Like when they, when they eventually get to the situation where they're going to be murdered, he brings chairs for the Empress and the Tsarevich, like really just this manipulation of like making them feel comfortable with him. It's really, yes. It's this icky. long waiting for them. It's real serial killer shit. You it's know, it's really, really, yeah. really disturbing. So I do want to go back to something that I've said a couple times now. I've mentioned most likely Lenin or probably Lenin said this, said that. Here's the thing. You will never find a specific message from Lenin to the individuals holding the Romanov family. And that doesn't mean they didn't exist. You're mm. just never going to find them. <laughs> so he has plausible deniability. Yeah. It's likely that they simply didn't want to have any evidence that he was part of this. From that point forward, there is a long history of keeping Lenin safe and separate from the horrendous violence of this Bolshevist revolution. So it can never get back to him. Yeah, no, he's mm. this, he, be, and he does become this like godlike figure in many respects. And he, he would never command them to do something so brutal and horrible. Right. So he no, has to be, be distanced by that. Yeah. And especially when you think about the fact that so many people are so unhappy that they are currently in power. And then you find out Lenin sanctioned this. That's not good mm -mm. for him. That's not a good look, let's say. No, his legitimacy is on being a benevolent ruler while being like malevolent behind the scenes, right? So yeah, so either these messages were all verbal, they were all communicated via telephone, or they were messages that were destroyed, or the mafia. apparently... There's a Russian historian, his name is of Vladimir Krustelev. He claims that all the documents from 1918 to 1990, where the name Romanov appears, have been removed from all open archival funds. In his opinion, they couldn't destroy them, but instead they've transferred them to special stores where they actually remain to this day. So Whoa. there could be a smoking gun in there somewhere, but I'll be fucking shocked as shit if we ever see them. Right, it might be de it might be coded. It could yeah. be lost. Who knows? And that's the thing. He did he was known for and if you ever read any Lenin bios or anything, lots of code in the telegrams mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. Like I already told you they were referred to as baggage or and mm -hmm, other terms mm -hmm. were used to describe what was going on. So that's interesting. As far as I'm concerned, it was fucking Lenin. <laughs> he made oh, that yeah. call. I mean, it's it, you all you have to do is look at some of the things that he's said and his general stance on the revolution itself, he says, was inspired by the French Revolution. 
what happened during the French Revolution? They executed the king. Yeah. You take out the monarchy and not just yeah. the king, also his wife. Yes. Right? Off of their so, heads. you know, if that's your inspo, then and he's the one he's he's the beneficiary of his whole thing. So Absolutely. And not to mention the fact that it gets real obvious after he then makes sure that every other living family member of the Romanovs that is out and about in Russia is arrested and then also murdered. And that is known. That is that is a fact. That is an undisputed mm -hmm. fact that he is the one who ordered that to happen. And we're talking about even like friends of theirs, like people who there was no lineage at that point. This is just yeah. fuck you stuff. You know what I mean? Sure. I, I mean, one of the worst ones really was Alex's sister, Grand Duchess Elizabeth. She'd left the imperial court to be a fucking nun. She is mm. of no threat. Mm -hmm. And yet she is killed in this horrible way where she she and other family members are thrown into a mine shaft and they throw a grenade down and only one person dies and then they're singing literal Russian Orthodox hymns when right. they throw in another grenade and it still goes on. And then finally they put kindling and set a fire and then it's quiet. Right. How disgusting is that? <sighs> and no I reason mean, other than you fucking don't like them. There's also a part of history, not that it's excusing any of it or softening it, but it's like, if you don't eliminate every single, if you don't burn this family tree down, you're not going to stamp out the hope of those monarchists that come up every generation, hopefully. Oh, is there a Romanov? And maybe that says something about the the, the temptation of Anastasia, you know? <laughs> well, <not> <laughs> Which I know you want to talk about. Absolutely. I really do. Of course I do. So yeah, anyway, me saying once and for all definitively, it was Lenin. Lenin did it. <laughs> Take that, Russia. How you like me now? Oh, they're going to come for me. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. Now we come to this very difficult story. It's time to talk about what actually happened to the family. If you've never heard it in its entirety, this is an extremely graphic and terrible story. So prepare yourself for that. If you need to fast forward a little, by all means. Listen at your own discretion. Yes. The reason why we know what happened is because of, I mentioned already, uh, Yorovsky's account. There was also the account of another assassin, Peter Ermakov, who is another terrifying psychopath of a man. He was the military commissar at the time. There's also been evidence from investigations. Afterwards, people went to the house and could kind of piece together what had happened. So here is likely what happened that night. On July 17th, 1918, at approximately 2 a.m., the family members are awoken, being told that they need to get dressed as they will need to move again for their safety. The family is taken down to a cellar, it is dimly lit and about 21 feet by 25 feet. Along with them is the czar's personal physician, Eugene Botkin, his wife's maid, Anna Demidova, and the family chef, Ivan Karitanov, and footman, Alexei Trup, all of whom had decided to stay with the family during all of these various moves. So there are 11 of them in total waiting in this rather cramped space. <sighs> Meanwhile, there is a group of armed men waiting to enter the room. And the plan had actually been to recruit 11 men so that each person in the room would be assigned a killer. But two of them, who apparently had some level of a conscience, said they could not kill the girls, they would not kill the girls, and so they backed mm. out. Wow. Yeah, so some of them got assigned more than one person, but they were down to probably between 10 and eight people at that point. He told them to shoot for the heart, 
to make it fast and easy. And I can tell you now, my lovely more buddies, it did not go down fast or easy, unfortunately. So the men enter and Yurovsky announces to the family that because his royal and close relatives inside the country and abroad were trying to save him, and so the Soviet of workers' deputies resolved to shoot them. Nikki is confused, evidently, and mm. says, what? Mm. And the family starts to look at each other and say, what? But his last words, apparently, are, what? And then Yurovsky shoots him. Now, that has even been disputed that it might have been another assassin who did the kill shot. We don't know because everyone starts shooting at that point. It's just pandemonium. Right. He is shot several times by at least a few of the men. At that point, it's just the, they're shooting wildly. There's bullets ricocheting off the brick wall that was behind the family and mm -hmm. um, their entourage to the point where it's so insane. There's so many bullets whizzing around that a shooter actually even gets hit in the hand. And Yurovsky claims that a bullet whizzed by his head. Right. Plus, there are these panic screams. The room is full of smoke. It's just it's just a nightmare. At one point, Yurovsky actually asks them to cease fire because it's so smoky and chaotic. They have no idea who has been done. shot or not. They have no idea what's happened at this point. Mm -hmm. So they take some time to air out the room, see what's going on. They have found only that Nicholas and Alex are dead. Maria has been shot in the leg. One of the daughters, Maria, has been shot in the leg, but she is alive. And two of the servants, Ivan Karitinov and Alexei Trup, are also dead. Dr. Botkin is then shot point blank in the head. Oof. Alexei, who'd been sitting in a chair frozen because he could no longer walk, his hemophilia situation had gotten so bad in exile. He was incredibly mm -hmm. sick. And I mm -hmm. don't even know how much longer he would have lived if this hadn't happened regardless. But sure. he's sitting in his chair and he is approached by Yurovsky and Ermakov who shoot him up. But he's not dying. So Ermakov begins bayonetting the little boy repeatedly. Blood is everywhere. Awful. It's absolutely terrible but still he would not die. Finally, he too is shot point blank in the head. And this must have been very disturbing and scary for the murderers to be killing this little boy who's supposedly incredibly sick and he won't die. And the reason why he would not die right away is because unbeknownst to the murderers, the family had actually been sewing gems and jewels and mm -hmm. these precious items into their underclothes. The girls had them sewn into their bodices and Alexei had it sewn into his undershirt. So it was more difficult. It actually turned out to make their death so much worse mm -hmm. because of this fact. But they thought they were going to need them because, yeah, eventually they're going to get away. Someone's going to save them. Right. Or they're going to be finally put into exile. So it's such a tragic, terrible thing. Uh, so Alexei is, is gone. Olga, Tatiana, and Anastasia are all huddle huddled together screaming. Tatiana is shot in the head. Olga is kicked to the ground and shot in the jaw. Ermakov goes to stab Maria in the chest, but his bayonet would not go through her bodice, so she was shot. Mm. And this is what pisses me off, too, is like, how did they not figure out? I guess because it was chaos. Like, stop stabbing them. Just shoot them in the head. Stop it. Like, it's so, much, it's so much more gruesome and barbaric and slow. It's just, it's fucking cruel. I can't. It, it makes me crazy when I read this part. So finally, Anastasia 
is repeatedly stabbed by Ermakov's bayonet. And again, he cannot kill her. She's fighting mm -hmm. for her life. She's screaming. And then he finally shoots her in the head. Then this psychopath, probably filled with frustration and just bloodlusting, he just stabs Nicholas and Alex, despite the fact they are quite dead. Gone. He yeah. just stabs them repeatedly to the point where his bayonet is going through the floor. Mm-hmm breaking i think i read somewhere that alex's vertebrae was broken he was stabbing so savagely and so deeply he's mutilation yeah horrendous and then they realize that anna demidova actually was still alive so he finally gets to stab someone to death mm -hmm. because she obviously is not wearing the jewelry armor this was 10 minutes of pure horror and slaughter chaos horrible this is, this is certainly not what Yurovsky had in mind. You know, as much of a sociopath as he is, he even talks about he needed to go back to his room, he needed to collect himself. And maybe that was more because he couldn't handle how chaotic it actually had become. But mm -hmm. like, regardless, this was not the plan. It right. was this so was a, terribly An execution. Yeah. yeah. And just as a reminder, the children's ages were as follows. Olga was 22. Tatiana was 21. Maria was 19. Anastasia was 17 and Alexei was 13 years old. Nikki was 50 and Alex was 46. Mm. So these are, these are young, young people. Young people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lives cut very short. So next comes the equally difficult task of removing the bodies. They decide they're going to take them to an old mine where there are 25 men waiting who are hammered drunk just to make this go again, that much better. I, you read Yurovsky's account and he just sounds so fucking pissed throughout the whole thing like i think he had this beautiful vision in his mind of how amazing how glorious this was going to be for this him plan yeah. yeah this amazing plan and it went to shit over and over and over again oh and by the way when they got there the, the men were pissed that they were already dead because they thought they would have gotten to be a some, part of some that stabbing into yeah 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 because everyone is insane, apparently, in this time period. <laughs> so anyway, the bodies are stripped down, which is how they discover the jewels. Uh, Muted, and, I'm sure. Well, they tried, and Yurovsky basically said, every single person who tries to do this will be fucking shot. Whoa. And they ultimately collected 17 to 18 pounds of jewels that Damn. were, of course, all brought to Moscow. Yeah. Because he's a good he's a good little comrade. He's a good soldier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the bodies are doused in sulfuric acid so that they could not be recognizable. And they are thrown into the mine shaft, but the killers realize the mine actually wasn't deep enough to submerge the bodies in the water at the bottom. So they need to find a new place. By now, it's the evening of the 18th. So this has been going on a while, since mm. 2 a.m. on the 17th. It's, mm -hmm. it's bad. These men are exhausted and honestly probably past the point of caring. Like all this excitement and fervor that they had is long gone at this point and so yes, they they dig six foot deep graves you know not a tremendous amount of effort being put into this they pour more more sulfuric acid to further disfigure nine of the bodies including alex nikki three of the daughters and the people that were with them people in waiting yeah yeah and they are then covered with dirt and railroad ties to kind of make it seem really just like a random haphazard spot this is giving me a Lincoln's body moment, but it's kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other two bodies were that of young Alexei's and the other sister. There's been a little bit of dispute about which one it was mm -hmm. either Maria or Anastasia. The prevailing thought seems to be Maria. 
So Mm -hmm. for our purposes, I'll say it was Maria. They were set on fire. Hmm. Their bones were smashed up and they were buried about 70 feet away from the rest of the family. And the idea behind this was, you know, Yurovsky thought it would seem less suspicious if it was just a hole full of nine bodies instead of the amount that people would actually be looking for. Right. You know, the complete set. Right. But at the same time, it's like, how common is it? right now in Russia that you're just constantly stumbling on mass graves. Little do like, they know. Jesus Christ. What the decades would bring. It's so rough. It's so rough. Oh it's my God. Disgusting. Jesus Christ. So the deed is done. Yurovsky tells his men to never speak of what has taken place and forget all that they had seen. On the 19th, a local paper in Yekaterinburg with of course permission from the top <laughs> in Moscow there is a headline that says execution of Nicholas, the bloody crowned murderer. And Nicholas is often referred to from this point on as Nicholas, the bloody in a lot of Russian propaganda. So yeah, mm-hmm. execution of Nicholas, the bloody crowned murderer shot without bourgeois formalities, but in accordance with our new democratic principles. Is that not the most communist fucking sentence wow. you've ever heard? I was going to say the rhetoric is thick. It's already so strong, right? Yeah. Yeah. It should be noted that the subheader in that article mentions that the family is safe. No. Yeah. So right off the bat, they decide they're going to keep that to themselves for a while. Two days later, it is now printed in national news. And that's the narrative for a long time that the czar is dead Mm -hmm. and everyone else is just gone. Now, I could only assume that they, they must have had some sense of shame. Or we're just so scared that the backlash would be so immediate and horrible. They had to know this would shock the world. They had to know. Yeah. Even even in their echo chamber. Even it, in their, it, it must have been. In their, and, in their, you know, extremism. Yeah. So the White Army actually does take control of Yekaterinburg, mm-hmm. which is sucks that it came at that point. But um, yeah. they immediately launch an investigation. They're checking out the house. It is so clear that they had been murdered there. There are incredible photos that exist of the crime scene where you can see just bullet holes everywhere. They found bullets. I mean, it was just so fucking clear. It's like a gangland shooting. Yeah, yeah, their clothes were all over the house. All their stuff had been abandoned because they weren't, you know, instructed to pack a bunch of stuff when they were leaving, Mm -hmm. including like their dogs. One of their dogs was shot. And one of their dogs escaped. It lived out a light, nice little life in England, apparently. <laughs> oh, King George took that fucker. I love that. Yeah, thanks. God loves a terrier. It was a King Charles Spaniel. What was I going to leave it? Much good breeding. Lovely. Oh, fuck you, wow. George. Anyway, no. so while it was clear that this crime had taken place here, there are no bodies. So mm, no bodies. No body, no crime. No crime. So even as like, botched as so much of that situation was they at least buried them well enough that Mm -hmm. they were not found so russia becomes a communist country yada 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 blah 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 a bunch of time passes (laughs) version of gorbachev yeltsin the end (laughs) and that's russian history good night everybody no but basically communism takes hold and the narrative around all of this remains that we don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. No one's allowed to look for them. The entire Romanov legacy is is being wiped out. They're not linking anything to Lenin. That's all that really matters at this point. 
Right. And things stay relatively quiet Mm -hmm. until 1979, when an amateur archaeologist by the name of Alexander Avdonin discovered the site where nine bodies were buried. Whoa. And he, of course, was like, well, this is the fucking Romanovs because he had seen a picture from Yurovsky. Apparently, Yurovsky's son had been in contact with this man. Mm-hmm. And he, so he had seen a picture of what the site looked like and it looked exactly the same. Hmm. And so, yeah, so he was able to find it. Now, needless to say, they were still in the don't fucking talk ever Soviet Union mode in 1979. So there was no way he was going to be able to disclose this information, pursue this avenue. But in 1991, the Soviet Union falls. Hooray! <laughs> so- <laughs> So basically, in 1979, the Romanovs are maybe found and the uh, Soviet-Afghan war begins, which leads to the real end of the Soviet Union, in which case they're they're now willing to talk about this. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So it's not until communism ends. Yeah. And like almost immediately, it's July 11th and the bones are exhumed. He he tells them the spot where he knew they were. The, The bones are exhumed and laid out into nine skeletons Mm -hmm. they're able to get dna from a variety of living relatives including philip duke of edinburgh as in queen elizabeth's hubby philip yes uh he was Mm -hmm. uses a relation to alex yes uh because he would be her closest uh living relative they are able to confirm the identities of the tsar and serena and by having their dna and knowing that that's them they could confirm therefore three of the bodies were the girls now, unfortunately, at this time, they did not find Alexei and who we believe is Maria, but they were found in 2007. So right. much longer so after. So recent. Wow. It's so crazy. It's just, but it boggles Anastasia mind. Anastasia was found. <laughs> yes. Either <laughs> that was her with him or uh-huh. that was her with her parents. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are all accounted for. Wow. It's over. It's been proven. Anna Anderson was debunked. Anna Anderson being one of the strongest contenders for uh, being Anastasia. There were many Anastasia impersonators, many mm-hmm. Romanoff impersonators through the years, by the way. She had an excellent, compelling story, and she fought like her entire life till she died. And then they were able to use this DNA against her DNA. And they're like, oh, no, she really was full of shit. <laughs> Fuck yeah. No, Anastasia did die with her family and knowing after hearing that story how could you possibly think someone escaped they did a lot of due diligence to make sure that no one could tell the tale so ultimately once the bodies are exhumed and identified they were weirdly declared saints which i still don't fully understand how russian orthodoxy works and i guess Upon further research, there has always been some like dispute because it's like they're not martyrs in the sense that they died for their faith, but they were given this status because they died in a Christian way in that they died with humility and grace Mm -hmm. and remained that way throughout hiding and everything else. So I don't know, maybe it was just like... (laughs) Well, this is really bad. You guys deserve something. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's what I think. And like, yeah, the, the Orthodox Church was like, you know, almost made extinct during Soviet rule. And yeah. then, they're, then they're back. And it's like maybe a way yeah. of like stitching themselves back to their ancient history. It's, yeah. It is interesting. 
and yeah, they're elevated to this super status in, in, you know, 80 years after their death. Yeah. And the family is laid to rest. Well, the family in the main grave, because at this point, this is 1998. So they had not found Alexei and mm -hmm. uh, quote unquote Maria yet. So they had found, you know, the five Romanovs in, in that one grave. And so in July 17th, 1998, which would have been the 80th anniversary of their assassination, they are finally laid to rest at St. Peter and Paul Cathedral in St. Petersburg. The ceremony was attended by then Russian President Boris Yeltsin, who spoke the following words. It's a historic day for Russia. We have long been silent about this monstrous crime. The Ekaterinburg massacre has become one of the most shameful episodes in our history. We want to atone for the sins of our ancestors. We are all guilty. Many glorious pages of Russian history are connected with the Romanovs. But this name is connected to one of the most bitter lessons. That tells me that so many people, whether they were benefiting from the power structure or liked the new power structure of communism and Soviet rule, something didn't sit right about this. It was ugly. Culturally. It was really ugly. You know? Because if they were so proud of this, why would they feel like they needed to hide it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why are they mm -hmm. still hiding parts of it? Yeah. The, the medieval tradition is chop their head off, put them on a pike. You know, this yeah. is this is more secretive and the lying and the deception and the sort of elongated unmasking of the crime. Yeah. And, you know, people we know, we watch these documentaries about royal history and, you know, even just absorbing the story on a human level. It is so sad and so scary and so tragic. And oh, when yeah. you're reading any history, you know, usually know the outcome. Knowing the outcome of this story, it's haunting. It's terrifying. And they're this they're for all their flaws. They're this beautiful family. They were people, you know, and this this ending is just unforgivable. It just is. Right. But one of the saddest parts of the story actually is that Alexei and uh, Maria are still not reunited with their family. Hmm. It's terrible. There's so much bullshit. And, and I, I can't go into all of this either, but re mm -hmm. read about it if you have time. So the church really didn't like how any of this was handled because they just, they felt like it was too political. You know, Boris there was making this about the government and mm. they felt like they were slighted, that they weren't given enough of a role in the exhuming of the bodies and the identification process. And so they literally acted as if, well, why should we believe you? And wanted, wanted to and have conducted their own DNA research separately. Interesting. Because it was part of their being canonized as saints. It's so complicated, I really can't even, can't even get into it. But so the same remains now for Alexei and Maria in that they don't trust that they have found enough of that because they're also fragments. Yes. Right? That's not the same as finding full skeletal structures. No. So they want far more extensive testing done on these remains before they feel conclusively that they can bury them with their family at St. Peter and Paul Cathedral. And I researched it a bunch. I don't know where those remains currently are held. Sure. I have no idea where they are, but they are not with their family, which is just so fucking tragic. Because there's one thing this family wanted, it was to stay together. Yes. And this all happens during the Putin era, right? Yup. Uh, later exhumations. I wonder if this is any at all like... Oh, and he thinks of Nikki as a weak, pathetic. Of course. He's not mourning that loss. No. 
Or if he does, it's crocodile tears. So not a priority for him. No. Certainly not right now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> With yeah. the war going on. But yeah, that's fascinating and so tragic. Yeah. You know, the science the science catches up with them, but the politics doesn't, you know. Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty devastating. And mm-hmm. I and I a lot of people were very hopeful that this would have gotten resolved when it was the the hundredth anniversary and it came and went. Mm. And nothing happened. And and in fact, like it kind of wasn't really talked about all that much in Russia again, because Putin like doesn't give a rat's ass about the Romanovs. Not yeah. Nikki anyway. No, no, it doesn't advance his agenda. We're only going to elevate the great men and the the great strong leaders of history. And this was not a strong leader. And it's funny going back to what we were talking about earlier. Different historians talking about does Russia always need a czar? I actually have yes. a great quote from Stalin. Great. In April 1926, he said that, although the party ruled, the people understand little of this. For centuries, the people in Russia were under a czar. The Russian people are czarist, accustomed to one person being at the head, and now there should be one. He, of course, referring to himself. <laughs> yes. And let me kill 40 million people to get my you know, agenda going. Yeah, that's, that's the prevailing wisdom or the prevailing cultural hypothesis of how this society works. Um, yeah. But again, just because you have the tyranny of history, the yeah. burden of history, the burden of experience, does that mean that is the way? Yeah. You know, know. <laughs> we would argue. We would. Argue, I mean, we've the two countries comparing America and Russia, both lived through revolutions where the yoke of history was was sh- sh- was sh- was shaken off. You know, but could you argue that the American president is somewhat is in some way a monarch as well? In, in I mean, sense. you know, it's not 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 impossible to say that. Yeah. I want to read to you one of my sources is a book called The Romanovs by Simon Sebag uh, Montefiore. And the last paragraph in the book is so, so good. I'm just going to read it to you. Putin's entourage call him the Tsar. Yet it is not the great Romanovs who keep Putin awake at night, but the memories of Nicholas II. One evening, Putin asked his courtiers who were Russia's greatest traitors? Before they could answer, he replied, the greatest criminals in our history were those weaklings who threw power on the floor. Nicholas II and Mikhail Gorbachev, who allowed power to be picked up by the hysterics and madmen. Putin promised, I would never abdicate. The Romanovs are gone, but the predicament of Russian autocracy lives on. Mm. There you go. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, if you guys thought Putin was going to quit, not so much. <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't know how up. it ends for him either. I don't know. Mm. It's a life tendency, I think. Yeah. So in lighter news, let's uh, let's go on to the where you can learn more, where are yes. places and, and things that you can see to learn more about this awful story. Do you want to learn more about this awful story? Yeah, I'm interested to know. Is there any kind of museum treatment? What's the deal? So there's a few things. There's a few options. First of all, the Apatiev house was for a long time, like almost immediately people could walk through it and like enjoy getting to see the spot where they were murdered. It was, it was, it's disgusting. And Real it was dark called, tourism. Yeah. yeah. It was called the Museum of the People's Vengeance. Whoa. Yeah, no, really dark. fucked up. But it was actually destroyed in 1977. Right. Uh, when the chairman of the KGB felt like, listen, the mood has shifted. People are making this more of a place of pilgrimage. It's it's bringing attention from anti-socialist circles in the West. 
let's get rid of it. Uh, the task to get rid of it was actually passed to uh, Boris Yeltsin, hmm. who was the chair of the local party at the time. So he's the one who actually ordered officially to have the house demolished. So isn't that hilarious thinking about what he said? But Comes even then, circle. he knew this is a shameful. This is something to be ashamed of. Correct. That was the mood. He wrote in his memoirs, which were published in 1990, that sooner or later we'll, we will be ashamed of this piece of barbarism. Mm. And even though it, this, the place was gone, people were still making pilgrimages. Yeah. And so it was decided after the dissolution, obviously after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, there would be a church mm -hmm. built there in its mm -hmm. stead. It is called the Church on the Blood. Mm. And it, it is actually one of the largest churches in Russia, apparently. And it exists on that site. It is, of course, a Russian Orthodox church. And there is a cross there that marks the location where the Romanov families were killed. So it's like a shrine to them. It is. And then in basically the other locations where the mines were, where their bodies mm -hmm. were found, there are also religious sites there as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these are places of mourning for these people. Yes. Ultimately. And what did, you say, what did you say the resting place was for the majority of them? Uh, as of now, uh, most of the family is at St. Peter and Paul Cathedral in St. Petersburg. That's where okay. all of the Romanovs are besides yes. these last two babes. Got it. So hopefully they they do join them. So that's that's the best place to go in terms of it, you know, if you really want to be in the site, be in the place where it happened, it must be very eerie to actually go to that place. A very dark site. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, so you could also go to the Museum of Contemporary History of Russia, which is, was formerly known as the Museum of the Revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously they rebranded re a bit. And what you can find in there is a lot of weaponry that would have mm. been used in the massacre, if oh, that's God. your thing. <laughs> it's, not, it's not mine. In the Kremlin Armory, which is where a lot of what would have been the crown jewels of the Romanov family and these Fabergé eggs, pretty much anything really nice that was owned by them was, of course, kept in Moscow and then put into this museum, the armory. Sure. And then, yeah, there's an actual Fabergé museum in St. Petersburg, which has, I think, like nine of them. Mm. There's some in the Virginia Museum of the Fine Arts here in the States. They're in the Royal Collection in London. We have them here in New York at the Met, the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Cleveland Museum of the Art. Like they're they're all over the place. So belonging belonging to the Romanovs. Yes, those are the mm -hmm. I was just talking about the imperial eggs. There's other right. eggs. Yes. And and I'm not even saying those are this family of Romanovs. Yeah. yeah. I mean they mm -hmm. they've been going on since uh the 1800s so yeah and then there's ones that'll probably never be found there's ones that are in the hands of collectors that we'll never ever ever see sure <laughs> you know that's that's that like secret underground world of the absurdly rich that are selling these things yeah, I have a egg in my bathroom because i can yeah, yeah just because just because <laughs> i fucking can and then of course as i mentioned you know, the, the jewels of the Romanov, the wealth of the Romanov, be, there isn't much that you will ever see outside of Russia because they really obviously kept the goods for themselves. They've yes. Interestingly enough, and I didn't know this until I researched it, that stuff has actually only traveled around the United States like once in the late 90s. Mm. And that could have something to do with our rather frosty relations. <laughs> 
Yeah, like, some Perestroika or Glasnost moment. <laughs> yeah, they don't <laughs> make it out the, again. No, they don't yeah. make it out the Kremlin too often. Yeltsin, Yeltsin, and Clinton are pretty chummy. Maybe he, maybe he broke it. No, no, no. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's what it was. Yeah, late nineties, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the upside, because so many people did live in exile and did manage to smuggle some of their stuff with them, there's little collections here and there here in the United States. And one of them that I would love to visit that I did not know existed until this research, it's the Russian History Museum located mm. in Jordanville, New York. Where's that? Jordanville is about a half hour north of Cooperstown. So it's way the way uh, up there. Sure, sure. But they have amazing artifacts and some actual blouses worn by the Romanov girls, like stuff Whoa. that actually belonged to them. So that's pretty cool. And they do some rotating exhibits as well. So if... I end up in Cooperstown because honestly, that's the only reason I would be that far up. I would, yes. I would definitely make a detour to that museum. It looks fantastic. Yeah. Beyond that. Oh my God. So many books, so many documentaries. The amount of content on the Romanovs is just incredible. Like there was a lot on Rasputin, the Romanovs, forget it. So yeah, that's it. Well, thank you for taking us on this journey um, across the uh, the continent, across the centuries. The Romanov story is intensely tragic, intensely sad, it and is. very morbid in its mechanics. And it is, I think, a good thing for history and for the population of Russia yeah. that they've reckoned with this on some level and they've acknowledged it because that's been a change as you were elucidating before. It's been something that was swept under the rug, something that was mythologized. And I think that also gave rise to a lot of alternative facts on that in terms of, yep. you know, the pretenders. <laughs> um, but, and, and, you know, being Americans as we are, we we've consumed this story through Don Bluth and through <laughs> many other many other forms and we're, we've been we've been talking so much about myths in this podcast we and, have and, yeah. and how myths are so appealing to us and so what better example than oh yes wouldn't it be so attractive to think that this family did not die there is a hope that a they survived and <laughs> b she could become the next Zarina, you know or yeah. something <laughs> like, like that you know and so it, it was and it makes sense like in the 1990s this anastasia movie would exist because it yeah. was it was in the imaginarium of the world as the soviet facade was crumbling but at the end of the day real tragedy real horror suffering and the lives of these people tragically ended and the world is still recovering i think from the shock of that that trauma it's a really yeah. deeply felt one yeah high and, and think, low people felt it yeah and i think you're right that there's still there's still a bit of a reckoning and i and i don't think until the two final family members are laid to rest and we finally get full evidence of lenin's orders and not yeah. just publicity his orders right. this doesn't fully close. And in many other nations, I feel as if there would be some sort of, I don't want to say apology, but like some kind of admission or something. I don't know if that's what Yeltsin did. That is what he did. That's what he yeah. was saying. Yeah. And, yeah. and obviously them being made saints is no small thing. That's a, that's a, that's a chip. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So it that's, makes a lot of sense. I mean, they, they, they have done a lot since mm -hmm. the 90s to repair this relationship with the Romanovs. <laughs> yeah. And have, someone like Putin really and someone like Putin is like, we already talked about this. Why the fuck are we talking about it more? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think his know. perspective is who the fuck cares. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's been over a hundred years. Who gives a shit? He sucked. <laughs> That's totally his perspective. Everybody watching, everybody watching Anastasia on Broadway cares deeply 
um, <laughs> Vlad. So, oh, so many kids being brought up learning a very not true story. <laughs> it's true. Bad history. Bad if history. That, if, if that led you to the truth, more power to you. If you can. Bad history. Facts. Great songs. Thank you, Katie, for that wonderful journey through the death of the Romanovs. Thank you so much for listening, folks, to the Morbid Museum. Please rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And subscribe to us on Instagram at the Morbid Museum for more morbid content. And join the legion of more buddies today. <laughs> Who are we, a legion now? Commun a communist legion. Uh, no! Until next <laughs> until comrades. Until next time, we'll see you again inside the Morbid Museum podcast for another gallery talk. Talk soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.